Hello, everyone. My name's Jack Fernan, and this is Exploring Existence, the podcast that looks at the teachings and practices of the world's religions through the lens of personal experiences. Today on the podcast, I spoke with the Reverend Dr. Roger Abbott, who is a Senior Research Associate with the Faraday Institute for Science and Religion at the University of Cambridge. Roger is a practical theologian, and his research is centered on how people's religious beliefs help or hinder their responses to natural disasters. Although, as you will hear, Roger argues that there is no such things as natural disasters. Roger has conducted research in Haiti following the 2010 earthquake, in New Orleans and their response to Hurricane Katrina in 2005, and the Philippines' response to Typhoon Haiyan. Roger is from the UK and his work in disaster response started as a chaplain in 1989 when he was one of the first responders to the Kegworth Air Disaster, where a Boeing 737 crashed onto a freeway in the English Midlands, killing 47 people. In our conversation, we spoke about Roger's research and the types of responses that he hears from individuals who have gone through such traumatic events. We then sought to contextualise Roger's research with the current coronavirus and how people in the West are dealing with the pandemic. We also talked through the theological problem of evil and how such disasters could happen with the apparent existence of an all-loving God. Roger also spoke through why he believes that it is human nature and institutions that allow such disasters to happen. We finished up the conversation by going through Roger's personal story and how he came to know an all-loving God. And so, everyone, thank you for joining us, and I hope you enjoy the podcast. Reverend Dr. Roger Abbott, thank you for joining me on the uh, on the podcast today. That's my pleasure. I've been starting the recent podcast with a bit of a discussion about the coronavirus, but we might talk about that a bit later with you. Um, but I thought we might just start with a bit of a conversation about about the work that you do and and perhaps the work that you do in, in more normal times. So are you able to give us a bit of a rundown of your day-to-day job in, in more normal times? Well, normal for me perhaps isn't not quite defined as it is for, for other people. My, my day job, as it were, is uh, researching so-called natural disasters. And an integral part of that, of course, is, is field work. So I, I tend to go into the situations where disasters have happened, not in the emergency response stage or anything like that. I'm not a relief worker. I'm, I'm a researcher. So unless there is particular need, I don't tend to go straight off to uh, a disaster. Otherwise, I'd be chasing all over the world all the time. But... Uh, so I've worked uh, in, in Haiti. I've worked in uh, Louisiana after Hurricane Katrina in New Orleans. I've worked in the Philippines after a super typhoon there. And uh, I've done a little project here in the UK to do with flooding uh, as well. So what that entails really is taking a hard look at the literature around the the issues uh, in Haiti it was an earthquake of course so my boss the director of the institute of course Professor Bob White is a geologist and he works uh, very much with volcanoes but 
that involves earthquakes as well. So I have the science to work with. And then I'm a practical theologian. So it's a very much a collaborative exercise, which is which is a great privilege, which is very much what the, the Faraday Institute for Science and Religion is all about. It's demonstrating that uh, science and faith can work collaboratively uh, and not in conflict. But my focus is very much on uh, the so-called natural disasters. I use that term guardedly, as you can tell, <laughs> because uh, contra so much of the literature and the commentary, I don't actually believe that disasters are ever natural. But uh, you, you may want to unpack that with me at some stage. Yeah, well, before we do that, um, when you go into these disaster zones, what is it that you are studying? My particular concern is to uh, explore how survivors of these uh, catastrophic events, how their religious beliefs influence the way they respond to these events, how they recover from these events, and how their religious beliefs help or hinder mitigation of future events. Um, all of the incidents involve what we call natural hazards, and it's how people's religious beliefs help them interpret those hazards and how their religious beliefs influence the ways that they can help reduce the impact of these events in the future to stop them killing and destroying lives and livelihoods. So that's my particular focus where, where, wherever I go in some way or other, that tends to be the, the chief aim of my exploration. So I go into these countries, I uh, recruit a team to, to, to help me, whether it's interpreters, translators, uh, drivers, or what we call gatekeepers, people that can open up communities for you because obviously I'm going in as a stranger and also going in as a white stranger into often non-white uh, ethnic environments and what I'm trying to do is to interview people in depth to uh, understand uh, their their experience so it's basically capturing their narratives their stories and uh, analysing those in terms of, as I say, the general aim, how religious beliefs have influenced their, their narrative and how their narrative influences their behaviour and their, their, uh, their practices in times of uh, disaster and in times of non-disaster because that, that's where a lot of the mitigation work takes place. You mentioned earlier that you're a practical theologian and some people might think that's uh, a contradiction in terms where <laughs> if, if you're studying theology, there's there's no real real practical element to it. But what I'm hearing from you is that you're taking theological ideas and trying to bring them to bear in 
uh, traumatic environments to try and assist people with their their recovery efforts. Um, practical theology today is is a discipline, a theological discipline in its own right, a bit like systematic theology, historical theology, philosophical theology. Practical theology isn't just turning theology into practical application, sort of, uh, that, that, was the, that was the more traditional concept of uh, pastoral theology, if you like. Practical theology is a discipline that actually begins, if you like, with, a, with a, an event, in, in my case, shall we say an earthquake, and the impact that has upon people and, and upon their religious beliefs. So you start with that rather than starting with a text, uh, with a Bible. You start with the context, if you like, the environmental context. And that then takes you, when you go to the text, it becomes a hermeneutical tool. It becomes a, a, a tool for, of interpreting the biblical text. And with your revised understanding of the biblical text, you then apply that back to the context, to the environmental context. And it's a sort of hermeneutical cycle, if you like. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's an interaction between the text and the context, the active context. So... Um, so that's the kind of discipline, which is why it's very suited to collaborative work. It's very suited to scientific disciplines as well as theological disciplines. And that's um, why I'm a fan of working with it. Can you give us a bit of an example there with your own work? Well, for instance, if you took a, system, a purely systematic theological approach, the more traditional approach to, to, to theology, where you, you, you can look at a, a disaster like the, um, you know, like the earthquake or any of the ones that I've looked at, and, and, and you, you could come out of those, for instance, very easily asking the question, how can a God of love and, and so on allow such an event to happen? And um, and you can easily set up a conflict then with the te with the biblical text, or or you can take issue with the biblical text. But when you look into the context of, um, for instance, what happened in Haiti or in New Orleans or in the Philippines, and why did people suffer like they did? And then you begin to come up with a whole raft of what I call complicating factors. Politics, social justice, environmental abuse, gender abuse, education or lack of, employment or lack of, and very often because this is due to corruption again. So you have all these human factors which are patently, obviously responsible for why people died and why there was the catastrophe there was. So you go back then to, to the text and you, you read there of this God of, of love and of mercy 
and you suddenly realize that, yeah, perhaps that isn't such a, a ridiculous statement. Perhaps that isn't such a ridiculous belief because you suddenly realize in these, in these disaster contexts that life is a very, very dark and or certainly has a very, very dark side to it. And that's a human contrivance. That's a humanly constructed side to life, not a divinely constructed. In fact, the, the more you look into the, the biblical text and the more you see the outworking of that, I speak from the Christian community, then you see that there is a huge amount of compassion, of selflessness, and of commitment to care and to whether it's environmental care or whether it's uh, human care. Uh, there's a huge amount of that going on in the world. And whereas it can seem very easy to ask, well, why is there so much evil if there is such a good God? Perhaps the other, the other question is equally important is, given that there is so much evil, how come there's so much good? How much, you know, every day we breathe, you know, we, we take so much for granted. And perhaps the current pandemic is, is reminding us of that, how much we have taken for granted every day of our lives, that we've been able to go out fit and well and come home fit and well. It's, it's not such a, it's more of a gamble now. <laughs> <laughs> and, and and that's coming home to us very much so that i don't know if that makes any sense that's that's the kind of working with the text it's it's far more than a mere academic exercise it's it's actually interacting uh your your faith my case my christian faith is is interacting with life in all its with, in all its brutality at times. In a lot of those scenarios, I can imagine that there would just be a lot of people questioning the existence of God or the nature of God. What are the first reactions that people have towards God or towards society in general? The, the question, the very fact that you ask that question and this is what my this is something my my research work has has really at times shocked me with as a white westerner who lives in the united kingdom where the only disasters we suffer from apart from the current one is our, our transport or sports related or flooding so we live in a very safe environment, and uh, I guess you're similarly, apart from your wildfires and the occasional <laughs> drought. So we, you basically, we're in a we're in a relatively high income, uh, uh, white in, in environment where every day isn't a survival day. Now there are exceptions of that. Of course, people who are, who are ill, people who have, um, you know, their own personal circumstances um, of dis distress, but generally speaking. 
when I go into my um, environments, which tend to be low-income ones, and that in itself is interesting because low-income countries are the ones that are most exposed to natural hazards. So they tend to be the ones that suffer most. When I go into them, and I've done this is without exception, no one has asked me the question that you're asking me. And I think there, there are a number of reasons. They're different cultures. And our culture or our, our, if you like, the white Western philosophy of life and, and worldview is not the only worldview there is. Um, and it's, you know, there is a tradition for us to think that if it isn't our worldview, then there must be something abnormal about it or something inferior about it intellectually or uh, culturally. But of course, that that's more hubris on our part. That's more arrogance on our part. So when I went into Haiti, which as you know from the universal strapline about Haiti is the poorest country in the Western Hemisphere and is still recovering from a dev devastating earthquake, blah, blah, blah. I found a people who were extraordinarily strong, psychologically strong, emotionally strong, and who, who were very, very capable within the limitations of the resources that they have access to. And a people who had a very, very strong level of faith. And I would ask people, you know, what, what they thought about God's goodness. And as I've said, no one ever questioned that. Now, was that because they lacked the intellectual capability to question it, critical thinking? Was that because they were afraid to question it? because of the fear of God rebounding back upon them if they did. Maybe in some cases it was, but certainly in the majority of cases it wasn't. It was because, quite the contrary, because they had uh, quite a clear understanding of the God in whom they believed. And in an earthquake situation or in, in any a catastrophic situation, there is very little that is stable in life. I mean, in an earthquake, for instance, nothing is stable. The whole, the whole floor is, <laughs> the whole ground is shaking. So the, these are people who, together with their intellectual capability, realize that at the end of the day, they are very, very fragile people living in a very, very fragile world. And so I think that they feel their level of dependence a lot greater than we do when it comes to things uh, divine. Our, our Western culture, which has become, of course, increasingly secular, irrespective of the very deep religious underpinnings that uh, it has historically, uh, is now becoming increasingly secular. And the mark of that secularity is our individualism. We, we don't need God. Uh, the whole secular thesis, you know, that we, we, we outgrow religion. And I think that uh, 
it, it's very interesting when I was doing my work in Haiti and in the New Orleans, where I saw huge devastation and, and was interviewing people. One of the beauties of interviewing people is that you really get to know them well and their, their experience well. And um, one of the things I, 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 I would come home and I would say to the, the folk at Faraday, one of the things my work has shown me is that I'm quite afraid for people in, the, in high-income countries because I said, if something like has happened in Haiti, happened in my own country, I don't think we would cope emotionally, psychologically, spiritually, anything like as well as the people in Haiti do. And what I'm learning from the coronavirus and the impact that is having upon us, I think I'm beginning to see that outworking. When I hear the alarm bells that are being sounded off now about the possible mental health, the serious mental health implications that are going to follow on in, in the wake of the virus, I'm thinking, well, what preparation has this have the population of this country had for uh, a disease the levels of fear the levels of uh, for all sorts of reasons uh, the levels of psychological damage and yet i you know i go back put myself back into situations in in, in some of the countries i've worked with and the the utterly devastating uh, circumstances that those people have had to cope with, which, if I may say so, to a certain extent, and I'm not minimizing the impact of the virus, but they certainly, the, the impact of the virus certainly pales almost compared to the devastating circumstances that some of the people I've interviewed have had to cope with. But they're not going through these terrible experiences of psychological angst and breakdown because suddenly they cannot maintain the standard of life and the quality of life that they have been used to. So I think that, that, that's that been quite a powerful message that uh, has been, I've had to take on board uh, in, in, in the work that I do. With the comparative situation of Haiti and the coronavirus now, it's been interesting to watch with the coronavirus how much people have tried to connect with one another using Zoom calls, Skype calls, jumping yeah. on sort of vir virtual chat rooms. Mm -hmm. And there was almost this instant attempt to create a sort of community in response to the virus. Whereas in countries like Haiti, they seem to have that level of community already that us in the West without individualism that we've begun to lose. Yeah, I think, I think that's right. I think that's a very important contribution to helping the people that I've, uh, I've worked with, particularly in, in New Orleans, for instance, which in itself is a bit of a standalone community, prides itself on its cosmopolitan nature. And, and has always been considered a bit of a rogue community, by, particularly by the North, but even by its surrounding states. Nothing good can ever come out of New Orleans, as it were. And that in itself has created 
a very close sense of cohesion, cosmopolitan cohesion within New Orleans. But then at the same time, you also have the African-American community in, in New Orleans, which is, is an even closer-knit community. And for that reason, on the one hand, found the dispersion after the evacuation in New Orleans to be totally devastating because it broke up that close-knit community. For those who remained, it was the saving of so many of them that they were able to have that close-knit community, be able to mourn together, be able to begin to rebuild together. In, in, in Haiti, even more so, because life there is very much more based around community, and traditionally and historically, and, and even now, even now is the case. Although with the influence of particularly the United States, but also Europe as well, with the younger generation, the, the danger is that even that community can begin to be diluting and dissolving. So, so we'll see what happens there in a generation or two to come. But certainly community is, is a very important ingredient. And like you say, with the coronavirus, one of the messages that sociologists certainly and I think psychologists have been sounding is suddenly so much of our life being stripped away, whether it's job, whether it's finance, whether it's leisure, and suddenly community is very important. You know, families can no longer meet together. I mean, we have 11, nearly 12 grandchildren, and the only way we can see them is on Zoom or we go and speak to them through a window. So we're all living now in virtual communities. We, this past week, of course, we had the uh, 75th anniversary of victory in Europe. So on VE Day, uh, you know, our, our street, which is a fairly short street, people were able to, you know, we all came outside and we sat at socially distanced. Now that... Probably that's the first time our, our actual street have ever done that since we've been here. And, it, and it, took, it took a crisis for it to happen. And we probably won't do it again until the <laughs> next, until the 100th anniversary. Yeah. <laughs> so I, community is important, but we're not very good, certainly here. And, and I confess I'm not hugely good at it either in actually employing community as best as we could as we can and i'm sure that is a weakness in 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 many of our so-called developed countries uh, communities our ways of life so w when you go into the disaster areas community isn't doesn't seem to be one of the aspects that you need to try and support but what are some of the, the aspects that you try and give give support to or that that help with their with the recovery? Well, first of all, I'm not there to support, although there is a spin-off from that which I'll I'll come on to. But my my primary reason for being there is purely research. Right. Um so I'm there to listen and to learn. 
Uh, and I make that very clear to people. I'm not here to, to teach you. I'm, I'm here to listen to you and learn from you. And that, that's, that's a very privileged position for people to allow me to have, actually. Um, and I feel very humbled by that. And that's what drives me. I mean, people sometimes say to me, how do you cope going into these situations, listening to all these these terrible stories? And I said, well, it really is a huge privilege for for people to allow me a stranger and then to tell me about the worst times in their lives uh, with all the emotion that that brings back for them. And I, and I take that very, very seriously. So So I'm there very much to learn. But in learning, of course, Part of the, if you like, the main aim of the research is to be able to learn lessons that we can all learn in, in, in disaster contexts. And so when I went into all of my in, in environments, the only thing I could teach them, and, and this brings me to the spin-off, because when you do research like this, you have to be very careful you have ethics approval and it has to be carried out very uh, sensitively and ethically. And that means that I, I cannot conduct a therapeutic interview. Now, I've been 30 years before I came into this work involved in church pastoral ministry. And so when I would normally sit with a, a congregant or, or anyone who came to see me and listened, then I'm, I'm, as it were, having a discussion, a conversation with them, which hopefully will result in them feeling better or seeing a way out of a problem. So I'm providing some kind of therapeutic intervention. I can't do that as a researcher. Um, I'm conducting a research interview, which is very different from a therapeutic interview. So I'm listening to people and they're telling me these harrowing stories about the emotional impact that that is having upon them and i can't intervene i can't step in and say you know well i just have to listen and my listening and my questioning is all to do with my research project you know if you come to the end of an interview and somebody is is in floods of tears then th th that's very harrowing you know, both for interviewer and for interviewee. But what has been really, really humbling and surprising, well, I say surprising, I don't suppose it is, but is that at the end of each interview, I thank people for giving me the time and giving me the opportunity to listen to their story. And in so many cases, those people have then said to me, well, we need to thank you because this is the first time we've really been able to talk about our experience in this kind of environment. And we found that so helpful. So apart from humbling me and making me feel, well, perhaps this isn't just all academic research stuff. <laughs> it's doing some human good as well. It tells me about the power of telling stories. And, and, and how important that is for people in times of trauma. The opportunity, the safe environment for someone to be able to talk their story out, I think has huge therapeutic value. 
And the fact that that can be done with anyone, really, who is a friend or a confidant, it doesn't have to be conducted in the expensive environment of a professional psychologist or therapist. And, and you can, do, in other words, you can do that in community. And if you haven't got the community, if you're, you haven't got the family network, you haven't got the neighborhood network, you haven't got the network of friends, then you can't do that. And you end up, I think, then in big trouble if you're not careful. And I think one of the secrets that these people have is that they do have that community and they do have that opportunity to sit and talk and share. But of course, when devastation takes place, and so often earthquakes and hurricanes and so on, when they hit, they have the potential to break up communities. And of course, that's what happened in New Orleans. 80% of the city was, was flooded and the majority population was dispersed all over the United States. Communities, even families at times, broken up. And then you get loneliness. Then you get isolation because after Katrina, of course, one of the problems was when the residents of New Orleans were distributed all over the United States, some of them arrived in communities that welcomed them with open arms very close-knit and warm and compassionate communities. For others, they were regarded as refugees, and they sort of had refugee status. They, they weren't welcome. Some of them were abused. Um, some of them were went through terrible experiences of being rejected and, and isolated in their communities. Yeah, but community is, is, is hugely, hugely important. And... That's why after, you know, when disasters happen, particularly if there are, um, if people are dispersed, then they need to be welcomed into the community. And so when you're listening to some of those people's stories, not to trivialise the individuals, but is, are there some commonalities that emerge in their experiences or is everyone quite unique in the way that they react to some of those disasters? It's important, first of all, to stress that everyone's situation is, is unique. Uh, that doesn't mean there aren't commonalities, but I think it's very important to understand that because every, every human being is unique, we have to be very careful about adopting a one-size-fits-all in our perspective on these things. I suppose because I was searching for issues of faith, uh, the greatest commonality that I found, and I, I would say this across the board, perhaps the work in the UK I did with flooding, let, let's put that to one side at the moment, but in the other situations, the, the commonality was their faith. And in particular, their, their confidence in, in, in the Bible in the text, in the religious text, and their resort to that, their confidence in the nature of God as a God of people who, who sovereign have no and hope, a God who most. is gracious and compassionate and good, a God who is creator and therefore a God who not only creates but who sustains his creation and therefore has an interest in his creation, including humans as part of that creation. 
and the, the whole concept of hope. I, you know, we've not spoken about hope. We've spoken about community. But I think I would put even at a higher level from both a psychological point of view, a sociological point of view, and certainly a theological point of view, hope is the the key ingredient to surviving and recovering from these uh, situations. And how important that is now with the coronavirus pandemic as well. People who have no hope suffer most. In Haiti, it was because people had hope in an utterly hopeless environment, politically, economically. But their hope was in God and in another life, another world, where these things would not be a feature of that world. And that was very, that, that was very strong. Uh, many people in, in Haiti, and you have to understand the context there, of, of severe poverty and uh, dysfunctionality. Many people would say to me, I have no hope in this life. Uh, I don't trust my government. I don't trust those in business. I don't know how I'm going to survive, but I trust God and I look forward to that uh, that eternal hope. And that was very, very strong. Now, you don't have a lot of that coming out of secular environments. <laughs> and I think hope in a catastrophized context is absolutely crucial. If you have no hope, you have no hope. Um, and these people did. You find it in the black community in the United States and, and, and in New Orleans where I was working, a similar kind of concept of, of hope, that the end of the story isn't the end of this story. Uh, it's the end of God's story. And God's story for God's people always has a good end. And that end is, is not in this life, but in the life to come that Jesus Christ has given assurance of with his resurrection from the dead. And it's that kind of hope that gives people huge joy, dare I say it, even in the face of, uh, of enormous suffering and catastrophe. So those are the things, I don't know if that answers your question, but those are the things that I have found absolutely crucial. And many people have taught me from the environments in which I've, I've been working. There's a real element of redemption in what I'm hearing you saying, where people can perhaps relate to the suffering of, of Jesus that occurred through his lifetime and, and ultimately on the cross, that they might feel that they're able to share in a, a severe suffering themselves and bring them to a closer or a, a higher level of salvation. Is that sort of right in where the, the hope is, is coming from? In terms of its origins, very much in the, in the Gospels. Very much so in, in, in the biblical text in, and in the Gospels. So it's very much rooted in, in that in terms of the environments that I've been working in. And uh, whether it's the Protestant environment of, of, of Haiti or, again, the Protestant and Catholic environments of, of New Orleans 
and the predominantly Catholic environments of, of, of the Philippines, not, not exclusively. But yes, it's been very much one of redemption, uh, redemption for them personally through the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and also in terms of hope, the redemption of the whole creation, that which we see the creation as a whole exposed to at the present is not going to be that which is going to be there forever. There is going to be a new heaven, a new earth. Current one, of course, groaning and creaking, as it were, waiting for the redemption, as Paul says in his letter to the Romans. So the concept of there being a, a redeemed, not just personal redemption, but a cosmic redemption, if you like, in which redeemed individuals will have a, a, a home and a security. That, that's something that has been very, very powerful to, to those in catastrophized situations. Just going on with that theological idea, a cynic might turn around and say, why would a God need the suffering in the first place to reach the redemption that he may or may not have had planned for them? What what would your answer be to that question, having seen a lot of devastation in these natural events or sure. quote-unquote natural events? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it raises the whole issue of theodicy, an issue that I, I must confess I have very little patience with, but... <laughs> But nevertheless, it's there. Yeah, and, um, and the odyssey is the idea of how does a god fit within a, a world that allows yeah. for evil. But yeah, I mean, the odyssey is, is literally the justification of God. How can a god who is good and merciful and sovereign justifiably allow the presence of evil and these things to happen? I'm not saying that that isn't a, a legitimate a line of, of thinking and pursuit. And, and you know, I, I'm abreast, reasonably abreast of the, of the arguments which have tried to address that. What is apparent to me is that ever since that question has been asked, no one has ever come up with a completely satisfying answer. And those that have come up with answers have usually added the caveat, and these are my words now, don't say this kind of thing to someone who is actually suffering at the time because it won't help them. Um, <laughs> the question I ask that my work causes me to ask is, is not, in all honesty, why does God allow suffering? The question that I feel my work thrusts upon me is this question why do humans allow suffering if we are so against a god who we think and accuse of originating and allowing suffering if we are so sensitive to the issue why are we not doing that which is patently obviously within our capability to do of stopping suffering and those are questions we're really not facing up to. The closest people who have come to asking that question, in fact, in my experience, have not been even Christian people. 
They've been social geographers, secular social geographers, who are saying, God hasn't got anything to do with this. Religion hasn't got anything to do with this. These things are caused by social dysfunctionality, by criminality, by corruption, by social injustice, and a whole range of human factors. Now, as secularists, of course, they can't involve God because or to involve God will be a nonsense, you know, which is why Richard Dawkins' arguments so often founder. Why is he so angry with God? Because he doesn't believe in God. So I side with the social geographers, the secular social geographers, in terms of them identifying the real questions. I obviously depart from them in terms of identifying some of the real answers. But yes, why, if we're so sensitive about, about suffering, why are we not doing our utmost to prevent it? Now, we can't prevent earthquakes. No way. Or hurricanes. In actual fact, we need those things. We need earthquakes. We need hurricanes. We even need viruses. These things are absolutely crucial to the sustainability, not just of human life, but to of our natural environment. So we need those things. We can't prevent them, and neither should we. What we can do is learn to live with them and live with them in partnership rather than in a battle. This is why I think the, the whole language that's being used at the moment, which interestingly, some medics, those working in, as nurses and, and, uh, and, and doctors in the intensive care units with those who are very, very sick, have also begun to rebel against is the, the use of the virus as a, as a battle, as an enemy that we are at war with the coronavirus, you know. We're not really at war with the virus. We're at war with ourselves over the virus because with all these things that are part of the natural world, they are not our enemies. We need to learn how to live with them. Now, you can live safely with an earthquake, you know, upwards of 230,000 people died in a matter of seconds in Haiti in January the 12th, 2010. In 2011, when the much stronger earthquake struck Japan and caused the tsunami, in the city of Tokyo, one of the largest cities in the world, no one died. Now, why is that? And the answer is because it is possible to build to earthquake-resistant standards of construction. It is possible to live even on major faults and not die. So why did 230,000 people in Haiti, poorest nation in the Western Hemisphere, blah, 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 die? And the answer is principally because of lack of education and because of lack of knowing how to build, or even if they did know how to build, 
having the economic resources to do that. Now, why? Is it because they were lazy? Is it because they were just a stupid nation, a primitive nation? None of those things. It was in large measure due to the interaction of in-nation corruption and commercial corruption and the interaction with that nation from outside by foreign policies, which are determined to keep Haiti poor because of its cheap labor force and because of its, its submissiveness to, uh, to, to, to high-income countries. Now, all of those things, all of those causes, apart from the earthquake itself, could be resolved between human beings showing compassion and mercy and kindness and generosity to each other. And why aren't we doing that? So I think, in all honesty, the question about justifying God is a red herring. It takes us away from facing up to our own very clear human responsibilities, whether we believe in God or no. So to the cynic that you spoke of earlier, I would say, well, okay, let's look at it from your perspective. Let's imagine there is no God. What is your answer to this problem? And how does getting rid of God really solve the problem? And I don't think it does. It just makes it a much, much bigger problem. Um, so I'm afraid, even as a Christian who believes in a sovereign God, I come back to this message of human responsibility and culpability. And, and that is what has stared me in the face when I've gone into these situations and listened to people's stories. And is that why you, you started off by saying that there's no such thing as natural disasters because the, it's the human aspect of the disasters that make them so? Absolutely. Absolutely. I can't, and I've had this discussion many, many times with people, and I'm still waiting for someone to come up with a disaster situation that convinces me that there isn't a human factor responsible for it. And, and the key one, in many ways, has been viruses. Well, what about viruses, Roger? What about genetic abnormalities and dysfunctionalities? And, and, and I take those very, very seriously. So one of the things that my director and I looked at very carefully when we first got wind of the uh, coronavirus beginning to take, uh, to make its way from China across, across the world to ourselves is how did this happen? Well, of course, there's one person in the world who's absolutely convinced that it happened because either consciously, deliberately, or um, non-deliberately, it was released from a, a, a uh, institution in China. And China, China is, is, is the answer to it. <laughs> <laughs> the conclusion we came and, and, and remain with still is that... Uh, this virus was a natural phenomenon, and like all viruses, has its role in sustaining life, not necessarily in human life, but in certainly in animal life. And this is where it started. 
principally in, in with bats. And then there was some crossover from bats, possibly via pangolins or certainly through some kind of transmission from bats to some other animals. And from them, because of human consumption of those animals, then into the, the human race. Similarly to HIV and how that went through the same crossover and Ebola. All of those were, were zoonetic uh, viruses and that's the kind of crossover that took place. Now, why did that take place? Well, again, we come down to human factors. Um, as urban development has has expanded, in, uh, in 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 whether it's in Africa, whether it's in Asia, whether it's South America, wherever, then human beings have come into closer and closer contact with wild animals. As urban expansion has taken place, we've taken over their their animal environments and. In so doing, we've developed a fascination with eating them. And so these these animals have then become exotica, if you like, uh, in some cases. In other cases, it's, it's just a way of life. And, and consequently, we've come into very, very close infection contacts with, with these animals and, and, and the crossover has taken place. Now, that's a very, very crude and almost simplistic, you might say, description of things. But nevertheless, it illustrates that there are very real human factors involved in this. And human ignorance, ignorance of our relationship with the environment. You know, so many problems come from that. The, the whole issue of climate change and the impact that is having as well. Uh, and all of these come back to human arrogance or human ignorance or both in terms of our ability to cooperate with the natural world rather than think or assume that we have to be at war with it. I, I was going to ask uh, a question along the lines of all your work has been to do with natural disasters and and the question was going to be what would yeah quote unquote natural disasters and how do you think the response would differ in a very human made disaster such as the holocaust but it sounds like from what you're saying that there would be no difference as that human element while more pronounced would still be the the primary cause of of, of the disaster but do you I think there are certain um, there are certain accentuations that occur in, in those different situations. That's an interesting question because up until 2012, when I began work at the Faraday Institute here in Cambridge, my principal interest was with very obviously human caused disasters, and my whole introduction to this kind of work. Uh, began back in 1989 when I was asked to respond to a very serious aircraft disaster, which happened only seven miles away from where I live. 
And it was my involvement in that uh, over a period of two or more years that spawned my interest theologically and pastorally in disaster response. Actually, within that same year, the, the aircraft accident was in 1989. Was that the, the, the Kegsworth That's Airline right, disaster? That's right, the Kegsworth air, air disaster, absolutely. Well, of course, just two months later, the Hillsborough football stadium disaster took place. And just a few months after that, the Marchioness riverboat disaster took place in the Thames. And within 1989, finished the decade of disasters, which is what the 1980s became known as here, because a whole series of catastrophic disasters involving transport foot, uh, and, and, and sports-related in incidents took place. So that very much spawned my interest in, in looking at uh, human disasters. And so when I did started my PhD in 2006, I was looking at a, a, a practical theology, to use the term again in its technical sense, of major incident response here in the UK. And, and I took apart, if you like, my own experience and examined it theologically, the challenges that it posed to my theology. And so I sort of examined that, explored that at that PhD level. And it was while I was doing that, actually, that my first experience was in Haiti. I went to Haiti in 2010, just after the earthquake, as a chaplain. And uh, I went again in 2011. And so I was now moving from scenarios that were obviously human to scenarios which stereotypically were obviously natural, as I was to find out it wasn't that simple. But actually... Even with the obviously human disasters, and because I was looking very much, working very much here within the UK, then whenever one of these things happened somewhere in the news headlines, there would always be a headline, where was God when such and such happened? So this whole issue of God and theodicy was always coming up. But when you actually spoke to people, who, who suffered from these things and who survived these things or who even were bereaved by these things, they weren't asking that question. They were asking, well, in, in, in the event of the, the Kegworth, they were saying, well, why wasn't the aircraft brought down earlier so it could have landed safely? What happened when the engine malfunctioned? Did the manufacturer, should the manufacturer be brought to, to, to boot? And so there was a whole focus there on the technical aspects. And, and the same has, of course, have happened in Hillsborough with the, the football stadium. And, of course, that has dragged on even to late last year before they finally got some sort of justice. But even that is still ongoing. And then over recent times, I've responded to, as a responder now, not as a researcher, to some of the terrorist incidents, the, the bombing in Manchester, some of the terrorist incidents in London, 
and most awfully to the Grenfell fire in London. And again, the focus has been very much here on the human factors. Sometimes I think with the God question, sometimes we really are getting away from answers, I think, which are much more closer to home and are much less comfortable to live with. The God factor really doesn't disrupt our lives. It's a philosophical question. I'm not saying it is important. After all, Job had real problems with God. That, that's an interesting concept, the way the Bible deals with this. The Bible, the Bible isn't afraid to ask questions about God's justice. The Psalms do it. At least one third of the Old Testament book of Psalms are what we call lament psalms. They're psalms where people are either telling God to wake up or to stir himself or asking why. But the distinguishing feature about the Psalms and about the book of Job is that these were not people who were questioning God's existence. It wasn't that what had happened to them was, in, was, was endangering their belief in God per se. The questions they were asking were questions born of confusion, hence why, explain, we don't understand. So they were questions which were interrogating God while at the same time passionately believing in him. The people who asked these questions the most stringently were people who had a relationship with God. And that relationship wasn't in danger. It was just in a state of, I don't understand. You know what you're doing, God, but I don't understand what you're doing and why you're doing it. Can you help me understand? So it was that kind of interrogation and lament more than complaint. So they were complaining to God they were not raging at God. And I think there's a difference there. And I think it's very beautiful from a Christian perspective and, and, and almost unique, actually, in, in, in the whole religious uh, genre that Christianity has this place for lament, genuine lament, and, and, and thereby reminding us that we have a God who is not indifferent to our suffering. We have a God who is hugely compassionate. We have a God who has himself, of course, entered into this world of suffering, hence the incarnation of the Son of God, hence the suffering servant of Isaiah becoming incarnated in the person of the Son of God, uh, Jesus Christ. And he himself, of course, taking upon his lips one of those lament psalms, Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And I think that's, that's, that, that means that has meant so much to, to, to Christians that we don't have to become Stoics in our suffering. We don't have to keep up the, you know, and we English are very good at this, we're historically good at this, the stiff upper lip, you know, and we, we just keep going. 
we can, dare we say it, fall apart emotionally before God. We can complain. We can even take our anger to God because he can cope with it. And that's a message that I think we, I want to get out increasingly to the Christian community, certainly here in the United Kingdom. I don't know what it's like in Australia. But uh, I've been to very few Christian meetings where I've heard some of the language used that the psalmist use. <laughs> the, the fear that uh, people would be utterly shocked. Now, when it comes to the Holocaust, by no means does, would I wish to minimize the horrors of the Holocaust. Quite the opposite. But let us never forget that the fundamental cause of the Holocaust is deeply rooted in human nature, both individually and structurally and systemically. And that kind of evil seen on the dimensions that it has been seen with the Holocaust is very, very rare. But let us not forget that genocide is an ongoing feature of global human life, day in, day out. And these are just manifestations of the evil of human nature. And the fact that these have been evils that have gone on for time immemorial surely shows us that as human beings, we need more than a human answer to these problems. And rather than rejecting God and rejecting, I would argue, God in Christ, perhaps we need to embrace him and allow the gospel to do that which the gospel claims it can do and which historically has demonstrated its ability to do. And that is to change human nature and to redeem evil. It's a, it's a very powerful message, and I hope one that uh, people listening take on board. I but, hear a but uh, coming on. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, no, no, there's no but. Um, uh, and, <laughs> and um, Roger, I thought we might finish by talking a little bit more about you personally. And, sure. Um, How boring. Yeah. <laughs> But you, 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 you've been a pastor and you've worked in, in some of these areas and you've followed this, this religious life with obviously a very profound faith in God. Mm -hmm. um, what, what was it that led you to, to live that sort of life? Uh -huh. Very interesting question. Um, I was born and brought up in the very southwest of England in Cornwall. I don't know if you're... Listeners will be familiar with that. Great surfing country. <laughs> the best surfing country. <laughs> um, except uh, at the moment when all the beaches are in lockdown and the surf is enjoying itself on its own. So, no, I was brought up in, in, in this very southwest of Cornwall, in fact. And uh, my family was not a religious family. Uh, it was my mum and dad, and I'm the youngest of three children. We were not brought up to go to church. Nobody prayed with us. It was a moral family, I guess. Uh, this is going back in the, you know, I was born in 1951. 
So uh, it was one of those post-war families, if you like. But uh, having said that, from around the age of eight or nine years, I can remember having a deep sense of there being a God somewhere. Now, where did I get that from? Nobody ever spoke to me about God in the home or anywhere else. But I had this very, very deep sense that there must be a God somewhere. And as much as a eight or nine or nine or ten year old child can do, my rationale was basically this. Well, if there is a God, then that's pretty important. I need to find out who he is, what it is, what is this God? How do you get to know him? How do you find this out? And um, I suppose because I was being brought up in England and rural England, I thought, well, prayer. Yeah, but how do you pray? What is prayer? So to cut a long story short, I, I developed my own, my own religion, my own version of Christianity, I suppose, which was basically pray. And it was, it was a ritual. It was a ritual. Now, I wasn't going to church. The only times I went to church were I went to Sunday school twice when my sister dragged me along and I'd be about maybe four or five years old and I hated it. I didn't know anybody, so I didn't ever go again. So I taught myself this and the problem was I, I devoted myself to this ritual faithfully and dutifully, but the problem was the nearer I thought my performance would get me to God, he moved the goalposts, and he, he was always, wherever I got, he wasn't there. He was, he'd moved. And as I developed into my teenage years, going through all the hormonal stuff and all the things that teenagers go through and the lifestyles that you can easily gravitate to, I got very angry. I didn't like this religious bit, and I wished I could just disperse of it, dis dispense of it, get rid of it, and, and engage in the other side of life that seemed much more attractive. But I couldn't get rid of this idea, if you like, of, the, of that there is God, and you've got to be careful. You're accountable to him. But anyway, this dragged on. The teenage, early teenage years for me weren't the happiest years, I must admit, because of this, this conflict. And then when I was about 16 or 17, my sister became a Christian. I mean, she became a Christian. She changed. And she'd done that away at, at, at college. And she started to invite me along to a different church than I'd ever been to before. And it was in that church that, A, I first heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. Never heard of it before. And through her connections, I was introduced to a group of Christians who were my age. I had never met Christians my age before. They, they were all old, uh, the few that there were. But these were young people, and they were happy people. They were my age, but thankfully they weren't my disposition, because I was miserable. <laughs> <laughs> And, and this, this really impressed me so much. And the more I spent time with them and in their environment, listened to them 
and listen to my sister and then her, her soon-to-be husband, I realized that up until then, I really not understood what a Christian was or how to become one. And so that led uh, then to me actually deliberately and concertedly giving my trust to Jesus Christ and, and my life over to him. And I've never looked back. I've never looked back and uh, I've gone through, you know, the academic side of things. I've gone through the real life side of things and nothing has ever persuaded me to go back on that commitment to Christ. And it seems like that faith has supported you through some pretty uh, traumatic times. Yes, it has. It has. You know, 30 years in pastoral ministry is, is, is well, three years in pastoral ministry is never easy, but 30 years is, you know, brings its own challenges. And you meet a lot of situations, a lot of people in pretty desperate situations. I really haven't come across a situation that I've had to face that has made me question why I'm a Christian or the value of my being a Christian. I don't think I could have coped with the things that life has thrown, both in terms of my work as well as personal life, had I not my relationship with God in Christ that, that, I, that I do have. And that, that is not credit to me. That's credit to the God of grace, whose who's hold on me is a lot firmer than my hold on him at times. <laughs> so, yes, no, no regrets. <laughs> well, Roger, I think that's a, a good place to leave it. And I think it's been a, um, a fantastic conversation. I know um, I've certainly got a lot out of it and uh, it's cleared up a few things in my mind. <laughs> so, um, so thank you very much for taking the time. Um, this morning for you, this evening for me, and I, I hope our listeners enjoy it. Well, I hope so too. I hope I've been able to, to say something that will be, be helpful. And thank you for the opportunity of meeting you and, and, and sharing something of my life with you and, and with your listeners. Thank you so yeah. much. No, thank you very much, Roger, and uh, thanks everyone for joining us.